Hi, this is Kevin Maloney from Grace Road Church. Thanks for listening to our sermon from Luke's Gospel. Luke writes to give a detailed account of the teaching, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He compiled this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to impart faith and assuage doubt. So our hope for you as you listen is that you would sense that the picture of Jesus painted by Luke is compelling, that what you hear would give you confidence in Jesus, and that your doubts would be diminished as these truths resonate with your heart. For more messages from this series and others, you can head to our website, www.graceroadchurch.org, for audio, video, and text resources to help you walk more closely with Jesus. Well, good morning. You could turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 today. Uh, while you turn there, I just want to remind you that, that we would love to be hearing uh, from you during this time. Uh, we know that there are a number of people who have started to watch our sermon videos, listen to the sermon audio during this time, and we would love to be able to connect with you as much as possible. Uh, so just to let us know that you're out there, if you would want to go to graceroadchurch.org slash connect, and fill out our online connect card. Uh, we would just love to know you're there. We'll email you just a, probably a couple times just to keep you in the loop on things that are going on around here. Uh, but also on that connect card, you can let us know if you have any prayer requests, if there's anything our staff can be doing for you, any ways that we can serve you. Uh, let us know. Uh, again, graceroadchurch.org slash connect. You can fill that out. We'll keep you in the loop on things and we will be praying for you and, and even look forward to meeting some people who are starting to connect with our church online uh, during this time of the shutdown. Uh, so, so let's pray, and then we'll open up the word. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you that you are, are good, and, and I pray that as we open up the scriptures, you would help us to see how good you are. Uh, help us to see a picture of Jesus that reminds us that you are worthy of our allegiance, um, that you are a, a good and kind and generous God who, who sent your son to die for us. And I pray that that awareness of the gospel today uh, would compel us to make sacrifices to follow you and, and for the good of those around us. Uh, we pray, especially for our church during this time, we pray for, for the sick, um, that as, as people are struggling with this virus and this disease, I just pray that your healing presence would be there with them. Uh, I pray that you would uh, heal those who are struggling today. We pray today for the fearful, um, those who are afraid either of the, the virus or afraid of the economic consequences now. I just pray that you would calm our fears and remind us that you are our provider. Uh, we pray for those who are even losing their livelihoods right now, that, that this would be a time of clinging to you, um, of trusting in your sufficiency, and, and seeing the ways that you come through for them. Um, I just pray during all, this whole time we would be clinging to you and knowing that you're good. Um, we pray that as we open up the scriptures and see Jesus, that, that his goodness would shine through in all of the calls that he makes in our lives to sacrifice. I pray that we would respond to those, um, but not just out of duty, not because we feel like we have to, uh, but because we know that Jesus is good and Jesus is worth it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is Memorial Day weekend, so, so happy Memorial Day to you. This is a weekend when we give thanks for those who paid the ultimate price to, to pass our nation on to us. And part of honoring our mothers and fathers is thankfulness for what they've done and what they've made and what they've handed down to us. And so, so we are thankful and giving thanks this weekend for those who have, have made sacrifices for us. Uh, and, and as always, we're opening up the scriptures because we want to see the, the one who made the ultimate sacrifice, uh, the one who gave his life for our lives and who all the more is worthy of our thanks and praise and, and total allegiance. 
And so, so we pick up in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is one of the most important verses in the entire gospel of Luke. This is the pivot point for the entire gospel. This is a key moment. At this moment, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He begins the journey to Jerusalem where he will be crucified, where he will die, he'll be buried, and then on the third day, rise again. D.A. Carson says that, that everything from here on takes place under the looming shadow of the impending cross. So every moment in the rest of the Gospel of Luke takes place under the heading of things that happen on the way to the cross. And, and knowing that Jesus is going to the cross soon colors everything else that we read in this book. We know where he is headed. We know that Jesus will die for our sins and rise again. The disciples who are following Jesus don't understand this yet. Jesus has told them he's going to Jerusalem. He's told them he's going to die, but they just don't understand how that could fit with their picture of Jesus as the Savior and the Messiah. But because we know the ending, everything from here on out in the book of Luke is different for us. Uh, Tim Keller compares knowing the ending of the biblical narratives to knowing the ending of the movie Sixth Sense. And uh, Sixth Sense starring Bruce Willis came out in 1999 before many of you were born. Uh, and, and I assume that none of you are planning on still seeing it, but, but you haven't yet. So I will feel free to spoil the ending here for you. Uh, but, but if you don't want me to, I'll give you about five seconds to fast forward about 30 seconds in, in this sermon so that it's not spoiled for you. Um, but, but in the movie, Bruce Willis is a child psychologist who's counseling a kid who sees dead people. And here's the spoiler. You learn at the end of the movie that Bruce Willis is one of those dead people. And this is a surprise ending. You never saw it coming. But once you know that ending, when you watch the movie a second time, which you pretty much have to at that point, it's a totally different movie. Knowing the ending shapes absolutely every detail until you get to that ending. And, and knowing that this section of Luke is going to end with Jesus on a cross in Jerusalem, in a tomb, and rising again, changes how we see everything in this book. It changes how we read and understand every teaching in this book. It's a totally different story if you're one of those disciples who doesn't really know that this is headed to the cross, and you're one of us, the disciples who can read this and who know the ending and know that it is headed to the cross. So we'll come back to this ver verse in Luke often. And Luke will keep reminding us of this. In chapters 13 and 17 and 18, there are reminders that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. So keep that in mind for, for the rest of Luke and even in these next couple of verses where it really affects how we read this narrative. So Luke 9, 52, it says, he sent messengers ahead of him and went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So Jesus sends some of his messengers to a Samaritan village to arrange a room for Jesus to stay in on his way to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jesus had sent his disciples out to preach in, in the towns, and he told them to rely on the hospitality there. People will take you in, they'll give you places to stay, and if they don't give you a place to stay, you shake the dust off your feet in judgment on that village. Um, they, they were supposed to just trust that people would be out there who would be for them, and for their mission, and giving them places to stay. And, and so these guys go to Samaria to find a place for Jesus to stay on his way to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans say, yeah, if he's going to Jerusalem, we're not going to house him here. 
We're not going to put him up here if he's headed toward Jerusalem. Now, the Samaritans were not Jewish. They accepted the first five books of the Jewish Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but they rejected the rest of it. And so, so all the stuff about King David, who established his kingdom in Jerusalem, the stuff about the temple being in Jerusalem, everything that the, the prophets did and wrote, they considered all of that to be extra and a twisting of the true faith. On top of that, there had been battles between these people. The Jews had gone to war with the, with the Samaritans about 150 years before this, which created some serious bad blood between these groups of people, between their nations. And so here, Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans probably assume that he's going there to worship. He's going there for the feasts and the festivals that are upcoming. He's going to worship at the temple, and they don't approve of the temple. They don't approve of Jerusalem worship. They've built their own temple there. They worship in their own place. And so they say, no, we are not going to participate in what he's going to do. They're not going to participate in what they think is false religion. I mean, if someone called us and said, hey, I really want to make it to the Satanist convention in Rochester, so can I stay with you? Would you help me do that? We would say, not so much. I, I don't want to be part of that. And these people who hear that Jesus is going to Jerusalem feel the same way. They say, no, I'm not going to have any part at all in this guy going to Jerusalem to worship. So they say no to Jesus. And, and once again, there is no room for him at the inn. There's no place for him to lay his head. And the disciples' response to this is, is beautiful. Verse 54, it says, And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You've got to be really mad that the motel didn't have vacancy to want to call down fire from heaven to consume them. But, but for them, to, to be refused hospitality was more than an inconvenience. It was an insult. To refuse hospitality to someone was, was to say to them, you stay out on the street. I don't care what happens to you. It was calling someone your enemy. You were saying, I don't care if bad things befall you. You're not coming into my house. So this is a total affront to Jesus. This is a rejecting of the Messiah, the Christ. It's rejecting the greatest king in Israel. It's rejecting the greatest prophet. The Samaritans had this long history of rejecting Jewish things, and now they're rejecting the ultimate Jewish king. And so the disciples say, we've had enough. And in the Old Testament, fire did fall when people rejected true prophets of God. Uh, when, when the prophets of Baal, for example, rejected Elijah and, and his God, fire fell from heaven and it consumed the offering that, that Elijah had set up on the mountain. And then those prophets of Baal were put to death. It was normal in, in the Old Testament when someone rejected a prophet of God for judgment from God to be called down on those people. Uh, there was another time where Elisha was mocked for being bald and he called a she-bear to maul the youth that were mocking him, which I think is totally measured and reasonable. And so, so the disciples here are saying, we are sick of the Samaritans rejecting our God. They're rejecting most of our Bible. They have this long history of rejecting our prophets and now of rejecting our Messiah. This has got to be the limit. Can we call the fire down on them now? So they're just like Jonah in the Old Testament who wanted God to destroy the city of Nineveh, which was just full of God's enemies. And so verse 55, it says, but he turned and rebuked them. Now to rebuke someone is to command them forcefully to stop. 
Jesus didn't just say, you know, maybe calling fire from heaven down isn't the best idea. Maybe we should find a different activity. He doesn't put them in time out. He, he got in their faces and said, no, you've got to stop this now. So why? I mean, there was precedent for calling down fire and those who rejected the prophets. So, so surely to reject the greatest prophet would require a greater punishment. But remember that key verse. Remember verse 51. Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he wasn't going there to rain down judgment on the enemies of God. He was going to Jerusalem to have the judgment of God rain down on him. The only one that the fire would be falling on, so to speak, would be Jesus. But the disciples didn't yet understand what we understand. We know that he was going to Jerusalem to endure the cross, but they didn't get that. And when you don't understand the message of the cross, it's easy to get moralistic and indignant against those sinners over there while not realizing that you're just like them. Yeah, these Samaritans were, were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting this one who is the greatest of the prophets and far more. But these disciples who wanted to rain down fire on them would also soon reject Jesus in Jerusalem as well. Judas would betray him. Peter would deny him. They're going to run away in fear and abandon them. Peter's going to be swearing that he doesn't even know him. They're all going to treat Jesus like an enemy when they go down to Jerusalem. So most of these guys who voted for the fire in Samaria would be proven to deserve the same fire for the same reasons when they get where they're going on this very trip. They didn't understand the cross yet. And when we start to get very indignant and outraged at other people and their failures and start to feel pretty good about our own performance, there's a good chance that we're misunderstanding the message of the cross as well. Because the gospel is humbling. Christians who are constantly outraged at the deficiencies of others probably don't know their own hearts or they're trying to avoid them. And we can get really loud and really focused and really zealous about someone or some church's failure. And, and that's usually an effort for us to drown out what our consciences are crying about us. Moral outrage can be like noise-canceling headphones that we put on so we don't have to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying about me. Because really, it's, it's far more comfortable for me to get outraged at you than it is to address my own sins. And I've now seen just so many people that I know that, that have been the most obsessed with other people's failures or lack of performance are often the ones with some of the darkest sins going on in their own hearts. It's become almost a, a predictable pattern that those who are the maddest at others, at things that seem small especially, almost always have their own huge issues simultaneously. I've known some Christians to, to pursue the, the exposure and the punishment of others with like a Javert-like intensity, and then it's later revealed that they had the exact same issues going on in their own lives. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful if we're always campaigning against, if we're always a warrior against, if we're always obsessed over what we're against, if our real desire is, is for there to be exposure and judgment more than our desire is for there to be mercy for others. Now, to be sure, there are, there are injustices that Christians should be outraged by, and there is a place for righteous anger in Christianity. When Jesus was flipping over tables, he wasn't trying to avoid his own issues. He didn't have his own issues. He was righteous, and he was righteously angry. 
But when we're outraged at others, knowing that we are not as righteous as at Jesus, that should at the very least be a caution flag. When, when we always think someone else deserves judgment and I deserve mercy, we're not behaving like Christians who know better and who understand the cross. We're more like these disciples on the road to Jerusalem that don't really get where they're going yet. They don't really understand the cross yet. So Jesus gets in their face. He rebukes them for wanting judgment and not mercy. And, and we should really consider whether he's rebuking us for wanting to see judgment and not mercy. Maybe we're forgetting the story of his mercy and his cross for sinners like us. Reading this passage in light of the gospel and in light of what Jesus is about to do at Jerusalem is the only right way to interpret it. And it's important for us to keep that in mind as we walk into these next verses now too. Verse 56, it says, And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So as they're on this road to Jerusalem where Jesus will die, someone comes and offers to follow Jesus anywhere he goes. And this will be the first in a series of three people who are contemplating following Jesus. And Jesus, surprisingly to us, tries to talk him out of it. This is not something that I've ever done. If someone calls or emails and says, I want to become a Christian, I want to talk to you about that, I've never replied with, wouldn't recommend it. it. Yeah, no, you don't want to do that. So what's Jesus doing here? I mean, he, he's not really trying to talk him out of following him, but he's trying to reveal to him that he doesn't really know what he's signing up for. He doesn't know the cost of following Jesus. He sees Jesus as this up-and-coming Messiah, this up-and-coming teacher. He probably sees Jesus as, that, as a rocket ship that he can strap himself into and ride to great glory in his life. And so Jesus says to him, you've got to understand what you're signing up for. I don't even have a place to lay my head. You think that I'm your, your path to glory. Let me tell you what just happened in Samaria to this great teacher. Let me tell you what you're linking yourself up with. They rejected me. They left me out on the street, and I didn't have any place to lay my head at all, and that's the way it's been my whole life in this world. And he compares himself to foxes. Foxes at least have holes that they can call home. And birds, they have nests that they can call home. But for Jesus, the world isn't home. There is no place that fully welcomes and accepts Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that he was always homeless any more than he's saying that he never laid his head down. He did lay his head down. He had a home at times, but he also traveled at times. Of course, he slept. Of course, he found places to stay. But just as he experienced in Samaria, there was no place on earth that he could really call home. The world was never a welcoming place for Jesus. There was never room for him in the inn. And how much more does this mean in light of verse 51? They're headed to Jerusalem where, where this whole world that will not be a home for Jesus is about to put Jesus to death. He's going to have enemies all over the place. The religious people are going to be part of killing him. The, the irreligious Romans are going to be part of killing him. It's like everybody will say to Jesus in the harshest way possible, you don't belong here. There is no room for you here. And so when someone comes up to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go, they're making a far bigger promise than they think they're making. This person didn't know what they were signing up for at all. 
Jesus says, before you say that, please know that to follow me is to follow the one who has no place on earth where he fits, and it's to follow the one who's going to the cross. And this kind of talk is almost foreign to us because we try to make Christianity as easy as possible to sign up for. We want to be seeker sensitive and we want to grow the church at all costs. And so we treat everybody like a potential customer. And, and we have a product that we want to sell to them and, and the customer is always right. If there's something wrong about our product, then we fix the product, we change the product. We want to capture as much market share as we can. Our goal is to please the customer. And so we tend to try to coddle people into the faith. We ask, how do we make Christianity awesome? How do we make it totally non-offensive? How do we make it line up perfectly with everybody's view of the world so that we can get as many people as possible signed up? And even in books on pastoral ministry, there's, there's some fear that gets peddled pretty often that says that if Christianity doesn't change its message, this world will not welcome it. We'll have no place to lay our heads. And Jesus is essentially saying, yeah, tell me about it. And, and to follow Jesus is to be unwelcome in the world in many regards. Your religious people may not welcome you because the idea of grace that is free and independent of the works that we do, it, it strips them of their sense of earned righteousness. Wild living, irreligious people won't welcome you because you don't jump in and do all the same things and they feel guilty or feel like you're judging them. Clean living, irreligious people won't welcome you because you don't necessarily share their morality or their self-righteousness. You're just not at home anywhere. You're not at home politically. You're not at home in the schools. Uh, the institutions don't share your values. There just isn't a permanent home here. Hebrews says we have no abiding city here. And we might look at that and think, well, that is discouraging. That's pessimistic. But this can be freeing. Because this means that we don't have to pursue the perfect place here. We can live in imperfect cities and, and work for their good. We can be part of imperfect institutions and work for their good. We can be around some people that we feel a little bit distant from and like we have different worldviews and we don't have to feel like we need to fix that. We don't have to try to fit in. We're following Jesus who had no place to lay his head. And when we sense that we have no place to lay ours, we can let that attach our hopes to the return of Jesus. That there's coming a day when he comes back and when we are resurrected and all things are made new and finally then the world is our home. And, and finally then Jesus comes and makes his dwelling with us in the midst of a new city. So that's what our hope is. We, we don't have to be so angsty about being out of place and not feeling like we fit and, and feeling like we have so little power and so little voice Jesus had no place to lay his head, and we're following him. So that could be expected. So verse 59, it says, To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So now, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus calls this man to follow him. And the man says, I need to go bury my father, but then I'll be right there. Now, if anyone has an excuse to delay following Jesus, it's this guy. Either his dad has just died or he is about to die, and he has a solemn obligation as a son to make sure that his dad gets a proper, proper burial. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 3 says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, 
and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So not having a burial is, is a huge insult. You had to bury the dead. Uh, in Deuteronomy, it was commanded that when people died, they would be buried on the day of their death. So you didn't delay. So this guy wasn't requesting a long extension from following Jesus. He's probably requesting about a day here. And it was for the greatest of all possible reasons. He, he wanted to delay his discipleship just for a little while so he could do his basic duty as a son and bury his father. You have to do that. And for me, the, the first funeral that I officiated was when I was 24, and it was for my dad. Uh, he died of cancer really quickly after being diagnosed, and I had no experience at funerals. I didn't know what to do. The nerves were piled up. And honestly, I didn't really want to do it. I, I, how, how do you handle a situation like that? But I felt a sense of duty. You know, of course I have to do his funeral. And no amount of nervousness would be an excuse. It was my duty as a son who's a minister to, to bury my dad. And in this situation, Jesus tells this guy whose, whose culture valued burial probably a thousand times more than ours does not to bury his own dad. The duty to follow Jesus superseded even the greatest of all of their cultural duties, which seems shocking. I mean, let the guy go. Let him bury his dad, and then he'll run, and he'll catch up with Jesus. It's just a day. But Jesus is teaching here that to be a follower of Jesus, following Jesus has to be the highest priority. It's not just a major priority. It's the priority. And people came up, and they said they wanted to follow Jesus, but, but they thought they were just basically enrolling in some courses. They were going to add Jesus to their busy lives. They were going to learn from him for a while. And Jesus here says that if you want to really follow him, the first thing you have to learn is that Jesus is not an add-on. He supersedes all the other relationships. He isn't just a teacher. He's not like any other rabbi that they might want to follow in their day. I mean, if, if on the first day of school, the teacher of one of our kids says, listen, your relationship with me is now your most important relationship. It's more important than even your relationship with your parents. We would immediately pull our kids out of that class. But Jesus isn't just another teacher. If he's the Christ, as Peter had confessed earlier, then following him would have to be so much different than following any other teacher. And if we're going to be Christians, we are agreeing that Jesus is more important than even the most important loyalties that we hold. Now, someone that demanding, someone that calls for that much loyalty, can certainly be off-putting and even spooky. But remember verse 51. He was going to Jerusalem. Yeah, he was going to call for his followers to give everything to follow him, but compared to what he was about to do for them, any demand would be minuscule. We'll come back to that in a second, but one more guy here, Luke 9, verse 61, it says, Yet another said, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, this is reasonable. A guy comes to Jesus, says, I'm following, I'm with you, I'm coming, but I'm just going to stop home and say goodbye to my family. Just give me a little bit of time. Give me half an hour. And this, this actually happened in the Old Testament. There was a time where the prophet Elijah called Elisha to, to follow him. And, and this is how it went down in 1 Kings 19, 19. It says, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. 
Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. This is a way of identifying with him and calling him to follow him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. So he says the same thing. Let me run home and say goodbye. And he said to him, go back again. For what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So Elijah was a great prophet and he gave Elisha his time. Yeah, kill off the oxen, have that final feast, say goodbye to everybody, and then you can come follow me. That's totally acceptable. But here in Luke 9, a guy comes to Jesus and says, I just want to do that. Just like Elisha, just just some final goodbyes, and then I'm following you. And Jesus says, no. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, no, not even that. So Jesus is greater than even Elijah. The urgency is greater. The demands are higher. And the person who looks back, he says, is not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is greater than all. Following Jesus is so important that that the person who follows him has to follow him exclusively. And he said that if you look back while you're plowing, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. If a person was plowing some land, he had to look straight ahead. He had to make sure that he was driving his yoke of oxen straight because if he looked off to the side, then the line that he was plowing could get crooked and could go off to the side. When I was learning to drive, I remember automatically drifting toward anything that I was looking at. So I had to keep my my vision focused way off, way down the road because if I looked off to the side at that mailbox, I would very easily drift toward that mailbox. You certainly didn't want me to be waving to you while I was driving by you because I would be drifting toward you. You had to keep your eye focused down the road to to keep that straight line going. And when someone was plowing, they had to do the same thing. Jesus compares following him to plowing here. He says, this is important work. And to do it well, you have to keep your eyes on him. There can't be glimpses toward any other ultimates, toward any other ultimate teachers, toward any other savior, You have to keep your eyes on Christ because other things are always clamoring to take the place of of Jesus for us. And when that seems harsh, when that seems like the sacrifices are too extreme, when a life like that wouldn't make any sense to us, it's because we're forgetting who Jesus was and we're forgetting where he went. He was going to Jerusalem. He was calling for absolute allegiance but he was about to be the one who gave his life to save us. I mean, there are plenty of gods and religions that call for absolute allegiance. And, and even when we ditch religion, there's always something that demands to be the ultimate priority. There's always something that, that calls for that absolute allegiance. There's always something at the top of our priorities. Some relationship, some priority, some person, some idea will occupy that ultimate spot in our lives. And we think sometimes that that getting away from religion will get us away from having to give our absolute loyalty to anyone, but we'll still have a new ultimate. And Jesus certainly demands it all, but he's going to Jerusalem. He's a God who gave his life for us. 
So he doesn't demand that we give him anything that we don't get back a million times over in eternal life with him. And because he's good enough to, to give us his life, we can know that all the other demands are for our good and not for our harm. The claim to follow Jesus is to make him first and, and foremost, and, and it can sound really spooky, but it isn't spooky if we know how kind and good he is. In fact, all the things that we fear losing for the sake of following him, we end up finding are, are lost for our good. But it's actually better. And maybe during the season of where there's a lot of economic loss and economic uncertainty and fear, um, we, we kind of look at our lives and we recognize we have a lot to lose. And, and there might be some fear that maybe down the road we won't be able to afford the toys that we've gotten so accustomed to. You know, maybe we can't take all the same trips. We can't have all the same comforts. And, and maybe you have those moments where you just kind of chase your fears and, and go down that path and, and you play, the all, play out all your worst fears in your head and you think, what if I lost everything? But then you run into almost a surprising peace where you sense, well, maybe that'd be okay. Maybe it would even be better if, if I wasn't so encumbered with, with all these things. Maybe if everybody just rejected me so I wouldn't have to keep up the appearances or, or anyone's favor, I'd, I'd feel a real freeing peace. Maybe if I did lose my fortune, then, then I could just declare defeat at keeping up with the Joneses. And, and maybe then I'd be free from all that. If everything that I've made such a high priority in my life just collapsed all of a sudden, Jesus would be here, and I know that he would be enough. There is a high cost of following Jesus. There's a, a lot that we give up to follow him, but there's a high cost of living for anything. We all live for something. I think we've gotten so good at putting so many things in priorities in that ultimate place, and it's created in us like an anxiety and a restlessness and a dissatisfaction and a fear for the future and a clinging to things. But all those things that we make ultimate, none of them are as good as Jesus. None of our other gods went to Jerusalem for us. Our other gods only make demands. They only take you know, if we make popularity ultimate, popularity demands that we keep up an image, but it never really gives us peace in return like we think it will. Wealth demands that we keep up an income, but it never really leaves us feeling secure like we think it will when we finally put this much away or we have this much uh, stored up for the future. Beauty always makes demands. It, it demands that we maintain the diet and the exercise and the looks but, but as we age, we feel those things becoming more and more out of reach. We're not getting what we're after. Climbing the corporate ladder demands sacrifices at home. It dem demands sacrifices in your health. But it only presents you with another rung and another rung and another rung, another opportunity and another call for you to just give more and more. Now, Jesus makes no secret that, that he demands it all. There's no fine print with Jesus. He tells people exactly what to expect if we're going to follow him. But he makes those demands on the road to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem and gives his life for us. And so his call for us to make him the top priority is, is not a demand for us to give up anything that we don't get a thousand times in return. Everything, everybody has something in our lives that, that demands total allegiance, but only Jesus went to Jerusalem. 
Only Jesus gave it all. Only Jesus is good enough and kind enough to give his life so that we could have everlasting life. And while he, he calls us to die to follow him, he's also a God who came and died for us so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be freed. He calls for all of it, but he only calls for all of it on his road to Jerusalem. And if he's that good and that kind and offers us that much, then we're really not making sacrifices in following him. When Jesus calls us to forsake everything to follow him, he isn't calling us to some unbearable sense of loss, but he's calling us to a surprising sense of freedom and joy. Because people who really have Jesus but have nothing else at all really do have that joy. It really is there. He really is enough for those who have nothing but him. And so believing that can really make us free. It can really give us peace. It can really give us joy even here, even now, even in a time of loss and uncertainty. We will always have Christ and he will always be enough. So let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we confess that so often we give our allegiances to, to other gods. We think those gods will free us, but, but they only take from us. They only demand more. They always overpromise and underdeliver. So seeing that for what it is, as our gods are being shaken right now, we turn to you. And, and Jesus, we thank you that you are so much better than all of those other gods. That yes, you call for our allegiance, you call for our worship, you call for us to sacrifice, to follow you. But you do so on the road to Jerusalem where you made the ultimate sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. So help us to believe that gospel. Let that shape us. Let that free us. When we give something to follow you, I pray that we wouldn't be doing so grudgingly, but we'd be doing so with joy, knowing who we're giving it to and knowing what you gave for us. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would fill us with a sense that Jesus is worth it, that Jesus is worth the sacrifice that Jesus always gives us far more than he demands from us. And that even his commands, even the hard ones for us to follow, were given for our good. And we know that everything he said, everything he commanded is all for our good because he gave his life for us. He has shown his heart for us. He showed that he's for us. And so help us to believe that and be freed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.